Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. He is the senior pastor of Memorial Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas and serves as the third vice president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod West-Southwest region. Also also notable for our conversation today is he is the author of the book Law, Life, and the Living God, The Third Use of the Law in Modern American Lutheranism. Pastor Murray, welcome to Concord Matters. It's a delight to be on the air with you. Yes, thank you. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start us by reading the first paragraph of this article, Article 6. Uh, from the epitome of the formula of Concord, laying out what the status of the controversy is, and then we'll go ahead and have you break that down for us a little bit here, Pastor Murray. So as I read this again, Mm -hmm. a reminder that on this show, we read from the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is Article 6, the the third use of God's law, paragraph 1, status of the controversy. The chief question in this controversy, the law was given to people for three reasons. One, that by the law, outward discipline might be maintained against wild, disobedient people. Two, that people may be led to the knowledge of their sins by the law. And three, that after they are regenerate and much of the flesh still cleaves to them, they might on this account have a fixed rule according to which they are to regulate and direct their whole life. A dissension has arisen arisen between a few theologians about the third use of the law, namely whether it is to be taught to regenerate Christians. The one side has said yes, the other no. All right, so that's the controversy, and they outline here for us three reasons God's law is given. They say outward discipline, knowledge of sin, and rule for the holiness of life. Dr. Murray, go ahead and explain to us then Uh, broadly these three uses, but then specifically as it pertains to this article, what is the third use of God's law? Right. Well, I mean, let's begin with the first use. Um, Our our synodical catechism breaks down the three uses of the law as curb, mirror, and rule. And and so, you know, every catechism student is familiar with that. In the case of the first use of the law, it is the way the law... Uh, keeps gross outbursts of sin from destroying church, community, family, society, and so on. Um, I describe it in catechism as the two-by-four up the side of the head. Uh, It's for that recalcitrant donkey 
that needs to be clubbed into some submission. In other words, it wouldn't obey the law, except there were terrible threats connected with it and the possibility of frightening punishment. So a good example of this would be that the murderer uh, is threatened by the possibility that he'll have a, a meeting uh, with the, the gurney and lethal injection. He wouldn't keep from murdering for any other reason than that threat. Uh, so that's the first use of the law. The second use of the law, which we have to be very clear for Lutherans, is the primary or main use of the law. It's the theological use of the law. And that is to identify uh, sin in sinners so that they're led uh, to repentance. And, and then, of course, uh, by way of this pedagogos, this, um, uh, this uh, leader uh, of the law to the gospel. We have no choice. So what the law is doing in its second use is killing you, destroying you, totally leaving you dead, pulp, just just ruined. And what, what's left then? Well, from us, of course, nothing. From Christ, of course, everything. And so that's the primary use of the law for Lutherans. And then finally, you have what the Form of Concord denominates the third use of the law. And, and that is simply to make the statement that the law still applies even to converted Christians. So it still needs to be preached to Christians, and it still has a place in the public preaching of the church. So the third use of the law, first of all, is just simply saying that God's word consists of both law and gospel, and that both law and gospel ought to be preached in the church till the end of time, uh, so that, you know, we don't neglect the law. Um, it, the third use of the law, of course, here also then gives us a fixed rule for which we, by which we can go ahead and regulate our lives. One of the things that people miss out on this, of course, is that the third use of the law also gives a certain freedom. Because what it says is that we're bound by God's word um, to do certain things as commanded by God's word and not to do certain things as commanded by God's word. But it also uh, allows the Christian to understand that he's not bound, divinely speaking, um, by traditions or ordinances that are neither commanded nor forbidden by God's word. So it actually broaches the issue of adiaphora. In other words, it tells us what things we are bound to obey as Christians and what things uh, we are not bound to obey. So you can see how uh, it would also give a certain uh, freedom uh, to the Christian when he can say, you know, God's law doesn't say uh, thus and so, therefore I don't have to do it. So it, it's, very, it's a very helpful distinction uh, in, in the Christian life. All right. You, you have a couple things there that I want to address. I, I think the, the one that you just ended with, that, that the third use of the law gives us a certain freedom. I want to come back to that one in a minute. I think there's a lot that we can certainly uh, continue to talk about there. Um, but you, you also brought up that, that you, know, you say God's word consists of both law and gospel and should continue to be preached in the church. And so th this obviously then f comes from 
comes on the heels of Article 5 on the law and the gospel in the formula of Concord. And as we covered that in the previous three episodes, uh, the, the Article 5, uh, we set up, um, especially in the status of the controversy uh, under Article 5, that the issues uh, with this Article 6 and Article 5 were linked together. And that, that was both by a source uh, and the teaching that was going on at the time, John Agricola, but also by content. Co- by content. And so like Article 5 reminds us that the, the purity of the gospel must be kept from co-mingling with the law. And so also the law then must be safeguarded from being considered abolished by the gospel. So I guess my question for you is this then, if this article that is Article 6 on the third use of the law is more or less an addendum coming on the heels of Article 5 on the law and the gospel, what then makes the third use of the law different or important enough to need its own article? Great question. I mean, I think it's more important to say that if you reject Article 6, I think you're conscience-bound to reject Article 5 as well. Um, And I don't know that anyone's thought through this all that carefully. Uh, There are people who are really delighted to reject Article 6 entirely as a um, Calvinistic imposition into the formula of Concord. Of course, I think that's total nonsense. But it seems to me that if you if you reject Article 6 in this way, uh, you have to get rid of Article 5. I think the reason that the formulators um, came up with an Article 6 was that they were concerned, uh, you know, that people would um, uh, would carry out their lives uh, in such a way that they would begin to uh, sin so that grace might abound. Um, and, you know, we're never going to be perfect according to the law. I mean, we have to be very plain about that. We have to say that justification is through Christ alone and that um, by the law, you'll never be right uh, in your standing with God. But then we don't jump off the, the horse on the other side and say, well, uh, then the law has no place in the Christian life. So um, I think there was concern about uh, a life that was undisciplined would, would arise uh, in, in the church if, in fact, we just simply said the law uh, no longer has any place uh, to be preached in the church uh, for Christians. Um, and I think it was also a concern, rightly or wrongly maybe, that we would look somewhat hypocritical uh, to our Roman Catholic opponents who all along said that the Lutheran doctrine of justification is simply a way for people uh, to act like uh, pigs uh, and simply wish away their sin uh, by way of just saying, well, of course, Christ has forgiven us. We can go do as we please. So uh, I think there were a lot of motivations uh, on the part of the formulators to make this clear uh, for the church. 
All right. So then I think this then connects in a little bit more to that that second issue that you brought up that that I want to connect in here then too. Uh, so you were just talking about how the 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 article on justification is is that chief doctrine of the the doctrine as we said many times on this show uh, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls right that's that's what we Lutherans hold to, and even the Roman Catholics at the time of the Reformation. Uh, you know, we're accusing us, and this comes out in the Augsburg Confession as well, that uh, then then the place of good works and things like that are just getting thrown away. There's no discipline in the church. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not saying that. We are saying that it, the, the law continues to be preached in the church. However, you yourself brought up that, that there's a certain freedom that comes in. Uh, for the Christian under the third use of the law, especially as it ties into issues of adiaphora, which, of course, we'll get to yet in the formula of Concord, that specific issue. So that's going to tie back in here. But then, you know, kind of balance for us. How, how does this play out for us then that we continue to preach the law and that it guides our life in the church and holiness, but yet we have this certain freedom? Right. So the idea here is that if we're quite clear about what the law and gospel are and what they do, then we have every chance of defending the article of justification. Um, so if you're unclear about how the law functions, uh, almost always you will place some form of the law into the gospel. Uh, now, this is a horrifying danger because it mixes faith and works in such a way, or the works of Christ and our works in such a way that they become commingled or equivalent, which takes glory away from Christ and, and ultimately makes it impossible for us to be saved if we're beginning to depend in any way uh, on our own works. So um, the third use of the law is ultimately, in my opinion, uh, a way of defending the article of justification um, in, in, uh, in our Lutheran doctrine. Okay. Um, I also want to bring in at this point then, uh, tie it to the, the history of the time that the Formula of Concord was being written uh, to give us a little meat to this discussion. You've given us a lot of meat to the discussion, but uh, a, a little historical meat, I should say, uh, to the discussion, that it says a dissension has arisen between a few theologians. So that's that's the status of the controversy then. So so what is the dissension? What, what are the competing things at the time that this is being written and dealt with, or, or even as we set up in Law and Gospel, it goes back, it, Luther was dealing with it even while he was still alive. What, what are the historical notes of, of what was actually being taught and going on in the church at the time? Sure. Well, um, as you earlier noted, the business begins with our friend John Agricola back at Luther's time, who... Um, kind of in a fit of rage, I would say, because he was passed over for a position at the University of Wittenberg um, in favor of Melanchthon, decides that he's going to tee up Melanchthon's views on um, justification, the gospel, and works. And, of course, he says ultimately, and repeatedly says this, uh, even toward the end of his career, that the only place that the law has is in the courthouse or the, the rat house, the, uh, the town, town hall, 
show that there should be no preaching of the law in the church. Well, of course, immediately then he attributes to the gospel um, the uh, the uh, idea of repentance, and this is, of course, uh, an egregious example of a confusion between. Uh, uh, law and gospel. So again, here we're connecting Articles 5 and 6. Um, and of course, he does this a couple of three times actually in his career. Um, then later in the 1530s, uh, he comes to Wittenberg and actually lives with Luther for a while. Uh, all the while, he's secretly attacking both Luther and Melanchthon. Uh, on their doctrine of justification, and then begins to preach publicly against them. Uh, and finally, then, uh, at the request of the elector, they have this disputation or series of disputations, uh, which get to be known as the antinomian disputations, where we get some clarification again about the distinction between the law and the gospel. Well, of course, this is all confused by the fact that uh, Melanchthon's um, Loki Communes, which are his uh, topics of theology from which he taught dogmatics at the University of Wittenberg, um, you know, begins to use language um, as the editions come out that are more and more problematic. And, um, and so there's this, uh, this debate that keeps going on uh, even in the work of Melanchthon. And you get statements such as good works are necessary to salvation. So the students, some of the students of Melanchthon, so now we're getting beyond the, the death of Luther, some of the students of Melanchthon take up his more extreme statements. And uh, like, for example, George Major will say that good works are necessary to salvation. The other side, the, the so-called Genesio Lutherans, the true Lutherans, um, they, um, they will say good works are actually detrimental to salvation. Um, and of course, both of these statements are considered to be at least misleading and should not be used uh, within the church because it will mislead God's people and give them uh, a horrifying misunderstanding of the relationship between uh, justification and good works. So, um, and of course, this has to be sorted out, um, you know, can we say these kinds of things? Uh, of course, in the article of justification, you must not have any works. And so, at least in that sense, good works are detrimental to salvation in the article of justification um, is on its own face correct, but the problem is that statement can be misleading. It could mislead people to think that they're free to act in uh, lawless ways uh, because of the article of justification. Um, as you know, and, and I know you're experiencing this as you study uh, the formula of Concord, Lutheranism is really about careful distinctions, making sure uh, that, that uh, various articles are treated in their proper uh, order and balance. And so there are times when we're bound by the article of justification um, to, to 
ignore the law. I mean, Luther will make statements like this, especially in the Galatians commentary. Um, and yet, on the other hand, we don't have the freedom simply to junk the law. Why? Because it is the eternal uh, will of God, the internal and unchanging will of God. And it existed, as the formula would point out, of course, in the garden, even before the fall. So before there was a need for the gospel, there was the law in place. So um, uh, this battle then uh, between the sort of two major uh, groups of Lutherans after the death of Luther and before the formula of Concord uh, causes a great deal of, uh, you know, energy and anger. The one thing that can be said, by the way, about it was at least in this argument, the theologians of the Augsburg Confession were pretty good about keeping the argument out of the public eye. They weren't always good at that, as you well know. Uh, but there didn't seem to be a lot of public uh, conversation. There was a lot of private letters going back and forth. Certainly some things published, but they stayed pretty much among the theologians. And so there wasn't the, the high level of anxiety on the part of lay people over, over this particular controversy. But it still needed to be sorted out. And again, I think the formula of Concord certainly does a very good job in doing that. I, I think that'd be a really good lesson for us still in the church today, although we're kind of cursed by our things get played out in the public a little more than maybe it should. Uh, but uh, uh, just as an aside note, but yet at the same time, uh, the the lay people are sitting under this teaching uh, coming to them from their pulpits. And so I think, as you noted there, it is very important that this does get worked out and, and sorted out in the, the formula of Concord here. And, and one of the things that as you were talking there and, and laying out, you know, especially the history of kind of uh, Agricola's teaching, uh, especially the thing that caught my uh, uh, ear is that you said um, that that he he was saying, you know, that there really shouldn't be any law on really just for the courthouse, which based on our discussion earlier of the, the three uses, or I like to say three functions of the law, um, that, that seems really more limited uh, high, highly to the first use or first function. Uh, and, and would also still play into the second function, especially as it leads us to faith. Um, so, so he's clearly denying the third use here. But then I, I wonder, especially as it pertains then into the preaching that would have been uh, coming from the, the pastors that hold to this, um, would he have held, uh, and, and maybe you don't know this, I don't know, uh, but would a have held fall after baptism from the faith as we confess in the Augsburg Confession? Now, I, I, that I could not answer. I do not know enough about Agricola's actual teaching uh, in that kind of detail. Um, I, you know, where you run smack into trouble uh, with Agricola's teaching is that he will preach the law. And what does he call it? He calls it the gospel. He actually says that repentance is caused by the gospel. And so sin for Agricola is not a violation of the law. Uh, sin for Agricola is the violation of Christ. 
Um, so the, the Decalogue has no importance here. Um, and so he'll preach uh, uh, the gospel. He'll preach Christ in such a way as to produce repentance. And, uh, and again, this becomes then uh, a horrifying confusion of law and gospel. By the way, I did appreciate your use of the word function or functions. Uh, we stumble a little, little bit over the Latin word usus or use. I do think it's best translated for our purposes as function. Um, and, you know, what you'll see, for example, in, in uh, Chemnitz, who's, of course, one of the co-authors of the Formula of Concord, his uh, uh, Loki uh, theologici will be that uh, he'll talk about a triplex usus, a triple use of the law. So he um, he seldom will use the term usus as plural. Uh, it's not uses of the law. It's a triple use. And so what what I think the form of Concord certainly wants us to conclude, and certainly I know that's what Chemnitz is teaching us, is that it's really impossible for us to sort out. Uh, which way God is using the law. So sometimes we we actually think that quite narrowly we're the users of the law. And there's, I think, a way in which that may uh, be correct, at least in terms of preaching. But I think more importantly, we have to confess that God is the user of the law, and he will use it as he sees fit, no matter how we preach it. So um, no matter what we're preaching in terms of the law, it may be heard as first, second, or third use by the hearer. And in some ways, uh, we have very little control over that. We may think we're actually preaching the third use of the law. Uh, to a Christian community, but there will be people sitting there who will be terribly accused, even to the point of despair, um, because they recognize that they haven't done the things that the law requires, and so it becomes for them first use. So I do think, uh, I do think this word function. That is, we're, we're seeing how the law functions uh, under under the under the use of God. I, I think that ties into, and, and again, I, I don't know the answer either uh, as to, you know, the specifics of what a Greek and, you know, from the Augsburg Confession falling after baptism and so forth. But I, I think it, it ties back in in this and what you were just talking about the function because, and, and I wrestled, especially as a, a younger pastor uh, uh, with this as well, that, you know, uh, and it's one of the reasons I prefer function is because, you know, I, I'd stand up there. And perhaps I was falling into my own errors with the with uh, you know Article Five and the proper distinction of the law and gospel is that I, I'd simply be be you know thinking that I'm preaching the gospel and encouraging you know this is this is the way that you live in Christ right and and then all the while out there people are getting accused by it and 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 I yeah. I remember being really confused by this as as a younger <clears throat> pastor and saying you know well you know I'm just I'm just telling you how we live in Christ why why are you so upset about this uh well it's because it's revealing sin in their lives and so you you kind of have all three going on at the same time and and, it, and it's the holy spirit who works this it's god who works this in their hearts right um and right. so I, I think it does tie in in this sense of you know uh, life as a baptized, you, you need that proper distinction of the law and gospel, um, and, and I don't get to control it. 
Well, right, and that, that gives us another aspect of it, which I appreciate you bringing up, is that that distinction also lives in the heart of the believer. Um, so, so he will hear certain things in a different way. And I think the classic example of this, in terms of a biblical example, is Isaiah 7.14, where, you know, we have the promise of the Messiah that the virgin would conceive and bear a son, and we take this as the purest gospel. We think of this as the most wonderful declaration of Christmas faith, uh, uh, you know, during the Christmas season. And But you have to understand that Ahaz took it as law, as an accusation, and as something he turned his back on uh, from God. So um, even something we would take to be the most pure, pristine, glorious, freeing gospel may be accusatory uh, toward the hard-hearted, uh, and rightfully so. So some of this has to do with the reception of the preaching as well as its content. This is uh, providing lots of lots of questions and uh, great discussion. I thank you for it. Uh, we're going to have to take a break, but uh, please come right back after this. Hi, I'm Gary Duncan, the executive director of KFUO Radio. Locally, nationally, and worldwide, we are impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. All of us during this difficult and unprecedented time are affected in some way. You may be isolating yourself at home or maybe even have family members or friends infected by this virus. All of the KFUO staff is practicing social distancing by working from home offices or for us on the air staff, we have temporary home studios set up, which in reality may be nothing more than a microphone and headphones connected to a computer with software, allowing us to connect back to the main studio at KFUO. Our promise to you is to continue to bring you the word of Christ in our programming and worship services, the clear message that we've been proclaiming since 1924. In this time of uncertainties, we can find comfort in Scripture. God is our refuge and our strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. That's from Psalm 46, 1. Thank you for listening and supporting KFUO Radio. And again, rest assured that when you turn on your radio, click our live stream, or download your favorite podcast, we will be here proclaiming Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The Messenger of Good News, KFUO Radio. Welcome back to Concord Matters. I'm Pastor Sean Smith. We're at uh, 6, the third use of God's law from the formula of Concord with the Reverend Dr. Scott Murray. And uh, Dr. Murray, right before we went to break, you were you were giving us the, the history, but then also we were already getting into the implications of what it means for our preaching and also for our, our hearers of the preaching in the church. And, and it brings to my mind this, this question. So as indicated by the title of your book, which I gave at the beginning of the show, Law, Life, and the Living God, the Third Use of the Law in Modern American Lutheranism, it would seem like, you know, if, 
if you write a whole book on this, and it's a wonderful book, I definitely commend it to our uh, our listeners um, to to pick up, and especially as our listeners are probably a little bit self-selective and rather interested in uh, good things of theology anyway, uh, I definitely recommend it. It's very good. But, but if it's, you know, third use of the law in modern American Lutheranism, it would seem like that this would still be a controversy today, uh, something worthy enough of, of you writing an excellent book on. So, so what in your estimation then would be the status of the controversy for us as Lutherans still today? Right. Um, I don't think it's all that much change from the context um, of the formula of Concord, because I do still hear of folks saying that the law has no place in the preaching of the church after conversion. And um, I find this greatly troubling. I actually picked the topic for my book. It's actually my dissertation topic. Um, on the basis of the first sexuality white paper that came out of the ELCA in the mid-1990s, I was at uh, uh, a Baptist theological seminary at the time working on my doctorate, and, and of course they brought the theological white paper to me and pointed at it and said, hey, how do Lutherans come to this conclusion? Of course, they knew very well that wasn't my brand of Lutheran, but they did love pointing this out. And this drove me actually to begin to do some research. How do you, how do you come to the conclusion that says that uh, certain uh, sexual practices forbidden by the law are now okie-dokie? Um, and, and part of the answer to that question, not the entire answer, of course, is that uh, the ELCAs had a long history of having kind of weak connection to the formula of Concord at best, and and in fact, quite specifically, in many cases, denied that there was any such thing as a third use of the law. Um, they indeed would argue that the third use of the law in the form of Concord is some kind of sneaking Calvinistic imposition uh, that that was brought in by the formulators, um, and I, I've actually thought about that objection a fair amount uh, more recently. I mean, you have to remember that the context of the formula of Concord occurred when the crypto-Calvinists were uncovered, um, when when the letters uh, between the Calvinists and the Wittenberg faculty were uncovered and sent to the, the elector. And he actually jailed four members of the Wittenberg faculty for lying to him. Uh, because they kept saying, no, we're not Calvinists. No, we're not making cause with the crypto-Calvinists. Uh, no, we're faithful defenders of Lutheranism. And then he found uh, positive evidence that they were doing precisely what they said they weren't. Um, one of those professors actually died in jail. And uh, I think the other two spent a fair amount of time in uh, in the elector's jail, which I'm sure was not a pleasant place, uh, and then won uh, a shorter span of time. So you can't imagine that Chemnitz and company saying to themselves, let's see if we can fool the elector, slip in some Calvinism, uh, and, and perhaps find ourselves in jail as well. I mean, after that whole crypto-Calvinistic controversy bursts 
onto the scene um, in the late 1560s, early 1570s, you simply cannot imagine, uh, not to mention their theological commitments are being very clear, uh, the, the, um, the uh, formulators of Concord saying, yeah, let's, let's do that to the electorate, let's slip a little, little crypto-Calvinism in here by adding this third use of the law business. Um, beyond that, of course, you also have people who uh, argue that it was some kind of theological mistake that they erred in in having this business of the third use of the law uh, in the formula of Concord. And, and that's similar to the previous argument, only the way you deal with it is simply to say, so what you're saying is that Chemnitz and Company uh, made a significant theological error, and none of them looked at each other and said, wait a minute, that's Calvinism. We can't put that in here. Or that the others who were involved in its publication at the time uh, did not uh, catch it as this horrifying imposition of a Calvinistic pattern of thought. So I, I think um, the idea that the formula of Concord, uh, you know, has this Calvinistic article in it is quite silly um, and, and simply not defensible. Um, so so I, I simply don't understand these arguments. Uh, from a historical basis. I mean, if you simply want to say, I don't think there's a third use of the law, fine, just up and say it, but don't say it in such a way that you're still claiming to be a faithful confessor um, of the content of the formula, Oops, except Article 6. Um, some years ago, I read through the confessions. I do it on a yearly basis, but I read through it with the purpose of seeing is the third use of the law elsewhere in the Lutheran Confessions? Well, of course, what I was surprised, and maybe it shouldn't have been, I was surprised to see um, statements that were certainly third use of the law-like um, throughout the Lutheran Confessions, even, and there was quite a great number of them, um, in Article 4 of the uh, of the uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession, uh, which is this magisterial defense of the Article of Justification by Melanchthon. Um, so uh, it, it's not so simple, you know, you say, well, I'm a confessional Lutheran, but I just, I just don't think there's a third use of the law. Therefore, um, uh, you know, I think that Article 6 needs to be ignored or removed or junked or it's a, you know, misunderstanding on the part of the formulators or it's a Calvinistic imposition. Well, this doesn't fly because you find the doctrine that there is a third use of the law throughout the Lutheran confessions, not least of which, of course, is the large catechism of Dr. Martin Luther. You certainly see direction for the Christian life in, in, the, um, in part one of the large catechism, the Ten Commandments. So, um, so I think I, I struggle with modern rejectors uh, of the formula of Concord. Um, and and uh, 
Now, of course, there are there's certainly struggles with knowing how to deal with the issues of, you know, to which man does the law apply, old man, new man? You know, is it both? Is it just, you know, one of part of man? Can man be divided up merely into old man, new man, um, as though, um, you know, we can we can separate them completely? Um, or, or should we always think of the, the regenerate person um, as a whole thing, kind of like Christology? Christ is a whole person uh, who is, you know, both divine and human. We can't saw him apart and say, well, here's the divine side, here's the human side. Well, no, uh, and would be the same, I think, in our anthropology, seeing uh, the human person um, as as being sort of shot through or cut through uh, with the old man, new man divide uh, everywhere uh, in, in his person. Um, and so it's not so simple as to say, you know, uh, we're only going to preach the law to the old man. Well, no, you're going to preach the law to the Christian person, and uh, it's going to continue to kill the old man. Uh, it's going to continue to inform uh, the Christian person. Uh, about their freedom uh, from, uh, uh, you know, the demands of external works and so on. So um, this is this is quite a challenge. Um, we, you know, and, and I appreciate the view certainly held by many rejectors of the third use of the law uh, that they want the gospel to come through clearly and purely. Um, and I would also say um, many times people are driven to reject the third use of the law because the third use of the law can be frightfully misused. You perhaps have heard sermons like this where they, they are called salad sermons. Well, uh, what do we mean by this? Well, um, they, they have a great deal of content of let us, let us do this, let us do that, let us do the other thing. Um, and you do wonder where the great gift of the gospel has been hidden under this pile of, of law um, shoved onto God's people, and it leads them to despair. Um, so, so there's no question about the fact that you can fall off um, the theological horse on one side or the other. On the one side being, you know, we're only going to preach the gospel, um, or where you end up with too much law preached or law that leads people uh, to despair of their salvation uh, without a clear proclamation of the gospel. Um, and I do think that's part of the argument um, in among people who uh, love the Lutheran confessions. They uh, think that the third use needs to be uh, jettisoned because... It, of, it, of the abuse of the, the third use of the law. Um, but again, you know, you have the Augustinian view that just because something's abused doesn't mean that the use has to be gotten rid of. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I think there's still a lot to be, to be said for having a third use of the law. I, I ran across a quote from Friedrich Bente, uh, who says the cocoon of antinomianism always bursts into anti-gospelism. Wow. So 
the thing that jumps to my mind as you, as you were talking there, especially at the end, is is Luther's picture of of riding the the horse or the donkey or, or whatever you, you you want to insert there, right? And 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 the proper mm-hmm. distinction of law and gospel of you know, and, and as I often say on this show, you know, the the Christian life is one uh, lived in tension, right? You, you, you fall off one side or to the other. Either way, you've fallen off the horse, right? And the whole goal is to stay on your horse. Uh, and so you, you yeah. got to hold that tension, right? And so I, I, I'm agreeing with what you're saying here that uh, probably, uh, uh, you know, it, it comes as a result of too much law preaching. Um, I appreciate the imagery of the, the, the salad preaching there, the let us do this, right? You know, and as we, as we covered in the, the law gospel article, article five, right? You know, it, it, it gets as simple as what we teach our confirmation students, right? You know, anything that you do is law and anything that Christ has done for you, that's gospel, right? And so it, it, it also brings back, and that was very fascinating. I, I, um, uh, I, I was struck by you uh, bringing in that this was sneaky Calvinism uh, being inserted into the formula of Concord. And, and I, I immediately started to wonder, and then you went on to talk about how the, the, the whole formula is kind of brought up in, into being because of the, the crypto-Calvinists and so forth. But it, but it also relates this question for me, uh, especially as you said you did your work you know, at a Baptist uh, theological school. Um, how then would Calvinism or Zwinglianism or, or kind of the other Reformed groups out there handle third use of the law, or do they even handle third use of the law? Yeah, Calvin calls in his institutes calls the third use of the law um, the prime use of the law. For us, its second use is the prime use, the theological use. Um, so for Melanc or for um, for Calvin, the goal of the gospel is to get you to do good works. With Lutheranism, the goal of the gospel is to get you to heaven. Never mind about good works. Um, you know, and again, you could say that, you know, when we're standing in the midst of the blood of Christ, uh, in other words, in the article of justification. Um, so it is correct to say that good works are necessary. Of course they are. They're commanded by God. But it is not correct to say that they're necessary for salvation. So in the article of justification, you may not in any way, shape, or form bring in good works. There's no, there's no but, you know, after the gospel. Um, so uh, we've been freed, of course, uh, to, to serve God in the specific terms he delivers in the Decalogue and in Torah specifically. Um, it's interesting, as we agonized here about what to do about public services in the church, um, the way our leadership team uh, framed uh, our explanation to our members was this, that in freedom, we have been set free to show proper obedience and respect to authority. And out of that freedom, we have chosen uh, to go to purely online services until a certain point is reached, where that point would be. So we were able to express it as... Um, as an expression of freedom 
um, because of who Christ makes us. We, we have the freedom to obey. We have the freedom to be uh, set under authority, to be as Christ was with his father, hipotasso, that is, set under authority. So, um, uh, you know, I do think there's a parallel here in the third use of the law um, that because we've been given this great, you know, Galatians 5 freedom, uh, we find ourselves bound uh, to serve one another um, in our daily works. And so, of course, daily works are always sort of vocational and are always set over against the neighbor. Uh, I'd like to point out to the catechism kids that there's nothing they've got that God wants. So what good work would you offer him that he's delighted with? Uh, and they're all quite puzzled by this idea. Um, so, so we're, you know, if we're going to do good works, if we're ordered by the divine law to do good works, the good works are done for the benefit of the neighbor. And we have to keep that straight. It doesn't mean the law is there by any means. We will know how to love our neighbor, um, in specific terms by way of being in the eternal and unchangeable, uh, will of God, which is the law. Okay, so you've brought in an interesting point that especially has contemporary uh, connections for us here. Uh, I'm really glad you did. It's got my my brain really racking here now. So you talk about, you know, at this present time in love for our neighbor, uh, we, we have the expression of freedom, right? Uh, to uh, to suspend services, uh, not, not to gather together, do online means or whatever else may be uh, appropriate for the particular context that you have, right? Um, but then, especially as it relates to the third use of the law in the life of the believer, okay, um, so we also still have the third commandment, right? And, and we also still have Hebrews 10, 25, that we should not neglect our meeting together. So, so how does that pertain to um, our, our life lived out uh, with the third use of the law being in place? Sure. Well, I mean, the, we're, we're in extraordinary times, and so I think that's we have to keep that in mind. One of the things that we have to keep foremost, too, is that um, the closure requirements of the state um, are not targeting the Christian church. It's not like the state said, you know, no churches may stay open. Well, in that case, you know, we would have to be motivated by Hebrews 10.25, all the more as you see the day approaching uh, to, to, to continue to gather together. Um, but I, I, what I see, at least in my parish, is there's no neglecting the Word of God. And in fact, while we're stuck uh, in the four walls at home, I see people delving more deeply into the Word of God. Um, we're, we're reaching people with a YouTube platform, uh, with services and, and song and word and hymn. Uh, we don't have the opportunity for the sacrament, but I've begun to tell our people that we live in the long Lent. Um, and, and part of our fasting at this time is uh, not neglect of the supper because, in fact, we hunger for it. Um, but we're willing uh, to be patient and wait uh, 
till the, the Easter feast can be fully uh, brought to us when we're uh, able to gather together as God's people. Um, so uh, I, I think our pastoral practice has to be sensitive and uh, a concern for God's people, making sure they're getting the word of God, using uh, whatever capacity we have available to us, but also to see that some things are inadequate ways of uh, delivering God's word and sacraments to his people um, and just respecting that um, in terms of our pastoral practice. Um, the church certainly survived from time to time when there was only quarterly communion. Is that is that what we want? Is that the best? Of course not. Um, and and within that that pattern, um, we would we would you know hope for uh, a patient waiting. Um, you know we're only a couple of weeks into the the various forms of shelter in place, and so we'll see you know where we are in another week or two weeks um, how how we can continue to sustain uh, this. Now of course God's still in His heaven, um, and I, I don't know how much help he needs from us to manage things. I mean, we often find ourselves thinking that if we don't do something, you know, uh, uh, the church will disappear somehow. But, of course, the church is God's, and he says the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Um, and uh, so, so we have to have some confidence that God will be with us as we try to fulfill um, our responsibilities as fathers, as parents, as children, as church members, as citizens, as someone who's concerned about the well-being, especially of the elderly. Um, and there's no easy answers. Ultimately, of course, the law gets us in the vice and squeezes us till there's nothing left of us. Uh, we've tried our best, and how do we feel? Like we haven't succeeded. Well, Welcome to the club. And so where do you go? You can only go to Christ your Lord and say, Dear Lord, I have tried and I have failed. Have mercy on me. I'll keep trying. I'll keep failing. But I ask that you would use my pitiful little efforts, uh, giving grace to them uh, despite me, not because of me, but because of you. And I know that uh, that blessing will be there. I'll live in that confidence uh, no matter what happens. I, I'm sure that's not satisfactory because, you know, we live in this difficult uh, corner. We're, we're truly in a vinkle right now. Uh, we're, we're stuck in a corner. And um, But I think over the long haul, it will sort out... Uh, in a way that is God-pleasing and, and may even redound to the benefit of the church and certainly the glory, the glory of God. Uh, there's no question about that in my mind. Yeah, I, I, I think... And, but, Go ahead. And by the way, I, you know, these difficult theological questions that revolve around law and gospel, old man, new man, um, two kingdoms, I mean, what you're seeing there is that the tensions in Lutheran theology that cannot be dealt with one plate at a time. So you end up juggling multiple plates um, because there are various tensions that cut across uh, 
uh, the lines of our theology as taught in Scripture. And so oftentimes, uh, the answers to these pastoral questions, because they come under multiple tensions simultaneously, are not simple. Right, which which then is the nature of theology, right? We're, we're, we're trying to uh, kind of live the Christian life out, which is lived in tension. And, and, and I was also thinking that you, you were highlighting really well for us exactly what we were talking about earlier in the, in the nature of the three functions of the law, right? It, that, you know, even as we're endeavoring to, to hold this intention, uh, you know, the, the third commandment, Hebrews 10, 25, but also love for our neighbor and concern for his body, uh, which would then bring in the fifth commandment and things that, uh, in essence, what it's driving us to, and, and I've certainly recognized this in my pastoral ministry here in Southern Illinois, and I'm sure you have there in Houston as well, is that, uh, you know, I, I just do a whole lot of repenting and, and just troubling over, you know, am I making the right decisions? I'm, I'm looking at what you're doing down there in Houston and what um, my friends are doing, you know, uh, spread out, you know, across the country and, and, and even the world, really. And, and I, and I look at the decisions we've made here for our dual parish. And I think, wow, I just, is, is there any hope here? And I thought you, you highlighted that really well, that the second function still plays in here, right? It's, it's going to show me where, where I'm failing. And, and I like what you said, you know, God's still in heaven and I'm not sure how much help he needs from us. Right. Uh, So, so it drives me to confess my sin and it drives me to Christ. It drives me to the gospel. Uh, So, so you have these functions coming together even when we're endeavoring to try and live and focus just on the third function here, right? Yeah, and but again, I don't know that that's possible. Um, I think probably we're better off to talk about a threefold function of the law than we are three functions of the law, at least in terms of the actual way um, it works. Um, so, I mean, you, you, you have, I think, a wonderful example of what we might call third-use preaching um, in the sermons delivered by Luther when he comes back to Wittenberg um, from the Wartburg and sees uh, horrifying things going on there. He certainly hammers the Wittenbergers with law. Um, and, and I don't think it's merely to stop the destruction. I don't think Luther has that in mind at all. Um, but he does want uh, them to live their Christian freedom in such a way that they're providing proper service to their neighbor. And, and the way he sees that working out is, look, we're not going to be destroying things here, uh, no matter what we think theologically about the significance of statuary or stained glass or altars. We're not going to go about destroying. That is an indication uh, of, of the loss of faith. Which I think then actually ties in quite well with what you brought up earlier, too, that this then does tie us to Article 10 on church practices and uh, the matters of what we call adiaphora or or matters of indifference. And, and it certainly pertains to those sorts of things. Uh, I'd love to just have so much more conversation with you. You've done an excellent job laying it out for us. I thank you so much, Pastor uh, Scott Murray, for joining us for Concord Matters today and talking us through the status of the controversy with regard to the 
teaching of the third use of God's law. Thank you so much. What an honor to have you. And listener, if you have a question or comment that you would like to leave for us to address the next time we convene for Concord, you can leave us a message by phone 314-996-1542, email kfeo at kfeo.org. Find us on social media at KFEO Radio. Thank you for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Church.